you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, as I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're going to take a break from uh, John's Gospel uh, through September 11th and focus our attention on a variety of passages um, that help us think a little bit about church culture. So as you're turning, I just want to step back a little bit, and this will be a little bit longer than normal, but just set, kind of set the stage for what we're doing uh, over the next seven weeks. And really, what we're doing centers on that word culture. Uh, for those of you who live and move and have your being within organizations, whether they're businesses or schools or teams or nonprofits or even churches, you, you know that culture, that word culture is a kind of a buzzword of sorts, and you, you may even kind of roll your eyes a little bit internally that we're going to spend time talking about church culture and especially about our culture, IPC's culture, what we value and, and what we say about ourselves and, and how we relate to one another and what our commitments are. But friends, this is important, uh, and, and especially now, after all that's happened to us over the last couple of years, it's, I think, important for us to reset and reorient our church culture in the same way as when your iPhone gets that kind of stunned screen where it stops working and you have to kind of hold both buttons to get it to do a hard reset uh, and then it comes back again. That's, that's similar to what we need to do, to do a reset. Um, why is this important? Well, here's a story why. Those of you who who are Memphis Grizzly fans, you, you might remember uh, the April Fool's game, the April 1st this game this past season. Uh, we played the Phoenix Suns. They were in first. We were in second. We rested all of our starters. Phoenix played all of their starters, and their starters against their bench, they lost. The Grizzlies won 122 to 114. And the most memorable play in that game uh, occurred in the second half, when uh, the rookie Santi Aldama went on a breakaway and did a reverse dunk. Now, the, the, the dunk was a pretty cool play, but the reason why that clip went viral was because of what the bench did. All of the starters in street clothes, when Aldama dunked the ball, exploded off of the bench with celebration and laughter and joy. They were genuinely thrilled that the rookie made that play. After the game, Aldama told Jeff Calkins for uh, the Daily Memphian this. He said, I felt like a part of the family from day one. Everyone was just like cheering me every day. It, it was contagious. You don't get that everywhere. Calkins then went on to write, you don't get that nearly anywhere is more accurate. Not in the NBA or in any workplace you care to name. I, I mean, is your place of work as joyful as the Grizzlies? Is it as supportive, as free of ego and angst? Where else can you watch a group of people in any walk of life working together with such zest? I have to admit, when I read that the next morning on the 2nd, uh, on my phone, I actually took a screenshot of it and boxed those words. Well, where else can you watch your people in any walk of life working together with such zest? 
what is that? What do we call that in a team or an organization uh, that supports even a rookie, that, that celebrates and rejoices, that, that's free from ego and angst, that works together with zest and joy? Well, we call that a, we call that a culture. Or actually, we call that a healthy culture, a culture of goodness, a culture of joy. Of course, there's another kind of culture, and that's a toxic one. Toxic cultures, whether in the workplace, in nonprofits, in churches, they work by anger and abuse. They work by fear and suspicion. They certainly have plenty of ego and angst. Toxic cultures chew people up, especially the people that work for them and in them. And the end result of toxic cultures is not joy, but a kind of despair. Now here's the thing. I think God's given us a wonderful and historic opportunity to reset our church culture and to move towards health and maturity. And, and what I'll be describing over the next seven weeks are aspects of what I take from the Bible to be healthy church culture. And, and what I will say actually matches and draws from a, a document that the session approved last August. We, we put it in the back of your bulletin. I think it's pages 19 to 21, something like that, on what a mature disciple is and what a mature community is. But the way disciples are formed and the way a community is formed is this kind of larger culture, how we talk about ourselves, the commitments we make, and how we relate to each other, um, the, the, the things that we most value. The, the culture produces a community that shapes disciples. Now, in order to talk about a healthy culture, I, I necessarily will have to contrast aspects of a healthy church culture over against a, a toxic one. And over the next few weeks, I may say things about how I have experienced us. I don't want to say anything that might wound unnecessarily, but part of a leader's job is to name reality. And the reality is, is that, that our church culture, as, as I've experienced it, has sometimes been toxic and challenging. And I don't want that for us, and, and neither do you, I trust. What I, I long for is for our church to look a little bit like the way Jeff Hawkins described the Memphis Grizzlies in the Daily Memphian back on April the 2nd. I want us to be a church that's characterized by love and joy and peace, where we work together free of ego and angst, where we know zest and joy together. How do we get there? Well, this passage tells us, I think, that the most important building block of a, of a healthy church culture, it, it's the most important building block of a culture that produces mature disciples in a mature community. And here it is. The most important building block is this. Jesus is the only true hero of the church. Jesus is the only true hero of the church. Not pastors, not elders, not prominent members, not theologians, not conference speakers, not disciple makers, not podcasters, not anybody else. Jesus is the hero. We want to be a Jesus church 
that makes much of Jesus, that delights and cherishes him as our focus and Lord and head and friend. We want to love him more today than yesterday, more tomorrow than today. And when we love Jesus, that means we're going to love what Jesus loves. And we're going to love whom Jesus loves. And this passage, especially verse 5, which will be our focus, puts that front and center. But before we read these verses together, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do desire to hear Jesus from you by your Spirit. We desire to see your glory, to hear of your grace. Lord, we desire it all to be for you. So, Jesus, pour out your Spirit upon us. Open our eyes of faith this morning that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth... We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of, excuse me, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this this passage is in the midst of of a section in which Paul repeatedly affirms that he does not lose heart in ministry. Of course, the section opens with that. Chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we we do not lose heart. He says the same thing again in chapter 4, verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. And then in chapter 5, verse 6, a parallel expression. So, we are always of good courage. Why, Why does Paul telling us this, that he's, that he's not going to lose heart, that he's, he's always of good courage. Well, to answer that question, maybe we need to turn it around. Why would Paul lose heart? I mean, think about it. Certainly the situation in Corinth, it would cause anybody to lose heart. You have church division and partisanship moral struggles, doctrinal differences, relational breakdown. And then on top of all of that, a a group of so-called super apostles were demanding the loyalty of the people and denigrating Paul's ministry and, and potentially dividing the church around their own unique personalities. And yet, in the face of all of that, Paul starts this section by saying, we do not lose heart. It seems almost superhuman, doesn't it? At least it does to me. Because truth be told, we've not been that different than the Corinthian church. And and I've struggled over the past couple of years and continue to struggle with holding on to hope and not losing heart. But, But Paul says, 
he does not lose heart. Why? Well, because he knows exactly what he proclaims. He and his colleagues have have renounced underhanded ways. They've refused to practice cunning. They don't tamper with God's word. Rather, he says, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Which leads to the question, well, what, what was his proclamation? What was Paul's open statement of the truth? That's where verse 5 comes in. You see it in your Bible still, right? Your Bibles are open. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So what's, what's the truth that Paul proclaims? Well, it has two things, two parts that he wants to drive across. The truth that he proclaims, pastors are servants, and Jesus is Lord. Pastors are servants, and Jesus is Lord. So first notice, pastors are servants. That's what he says, isn't it? For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Rather, by extension, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In other words, pastors are not the heroes. We're not not proclaiming ourselves. Pastors are not the heroes. We're servants. Now, I I grew up in a tradition that saw all of this very, very differently. We we saw pastors as heroes to follow and to emulate and, and with whom to be identified. And we derived our identity by our relationship with those pastors. So I, I have this, this old Bible that I brought up to the podium with me. Um, Sarah bought this our first Christmas together. Um, it's actually a really sweet Cambridge Wide Margin King James Version um, that she wrote her uh, wrote in the front and has the verse that for 31 years now has been our family verse, Psalm 34 verse 3. But if you were to flip over uh, in the next page, what you'd find uh, is something that I think was probably unique to the Independent Baptist fundamentalist tradition I grew up in. We actually had pastors and evangelists sign their Bi- sign our Bibles. Yeah, that's that's super weird. <laughs> like, if you come out the back and ask me to sign your Bible, I'm not going to do it. Like. But we did that. And so right on the inside, the only person who I've ever had signed a Bible, you have the signature of Ron Comfort. Um, Ron Comfort was an evangelist you never heard of before. Uh, but he was, he was important in the circles in which Sarah and I found ourselves. And I'll never forget the night uh, when I went out to this little country Baptist church in South Carolina. I was probably 21, maybe 22 to hear Ron Comfort preach. He preached, I'll still remember it, preached on the four horsemen of the apocalypse from Revelation chapter 6. And he preached with such power and such force and with such manner. Uh, there was just an evident kind of zing to what he was preaching. And I, as a 21, 22-year-old preacher boy, I, he was everything I aspired to be. I wanted to be Ron Comfort, the evangelist. And so after the altar call invitation, which took longer than a minute, um, uh, at the end of the service, I went up and he was signing different people's Bibles. And I said, Brother Comfort, because that's what we said in our tradition, Brother Comfort, would you sign my Bible? And evidently, as you might be able to see, he did. Now, again, 
that's super weird, but, but why in the world did I do that? Well, because in one form or fashion, uh, Ron Comfort, the evangelist, was a, was a hero. He, he was someone I wanted to emulate. He was someone I trusted. I, 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 in some ways, I kind of emulated, at least at that point, the, his style, the way he preached. I, I, I wanted to be a Ron Comfort man. Of course, in our Presbyterian Reformed tradition, we may not get people to sign our Bibles, but we can still identify ourselves with pastors and evangelists and theologians and men. We, we identify ourselves as Sproul men or Sartell men or, or, or Keller guys or Richie Session guys. Or, or Scotty Smith people, or, or Sean Lucas people. Of course, none of those whom I named would want that to be the case. We don't proclaim ourselves. But, but, but part of the problem that comes is when we identify ourselves in this way, when we think that our identities and our Christian identities are, are maintained by loyalty to a man, to what he taught, to his perspective, to his emphases, we actually are making them the hero and we're being led away from Jesus. Friends, what, what Paul's telling us here is that shouldn't be. Our, our loyalties are not to pastors because they're not the heroes. Pastors are servants for you. That, I mean, that's what Paul says. Paul says, ourselves as your servants. I'll speak for myself, but I, I know what all the pastors here would say the same thing. The, the reason why I'm here is to serve you. It was almost six years ago that you called me to be your pastor. It was the last Sunday of September 2016. And when I came and met with you, one of the things, when I was asked, why do you, why do you want to come here? I said, I think I can help you. I think I can serve you. That, that's why I'm here. And the, and the service that I'm called by Jesus and by you all to provide you is to open this Bible every week in a variety of different ways and to point you to Jesus. That's the service that I provide. And it may be from the pulpit or if you come to my office to meet with me or it may be over lunch or in your home or, or during your wedding or in a hospital room or at the graveside, it doesn't matter my only goal as a pastor is to serve you and to serve you by pointing you to Jesus. Of course, if you have your ESV Bibles, there's a little footnote by that word servants. We are your servants, and there's a little footnote. There at the bottom it says Greek bondservants, or probably better, Greek slaves. It's a Greek word, doulos. That's the word we generally translate as slaves. It means I'm I'm your slave. It means I don't always have my own agency. I certainly don't always get my way. It means that I don't have control of my time or my interests. It, it means ultimately that I'm going to fail and make mistakes because slaves do. All that I am and all that I have, it, it's actually not mine. I took vows to dedicate it to another, I, to dedicate it for you, to use it here in this place for you, as, as a pastor, I am your servant, but it's ultimately for Jesus. Because, of course, that's the rest of the verse, right? You see it? With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
As pastors, we serve you for Jesus' sake. We don't serve you for your sake. We don't serve you because you have money or influence, power or connection. We, we don't, or at least we, we shouldn't, serve you to be somebodies, <laughs> to gain a name for ourselves as the pastor of this well-known church or that well-known church. No, we, we serve you for Jesus' sake because Jesus is the, the audience for whom we play. We, we, we play for an audience of one. Ken Hughes tells a story uh, of a relatively well-known conductor who uh, was preparing an incredibly difficult piece. He chose it to premiere uh, the season for uh, his orchestra. And all throughout the summer, as they were preparing for the fall premiere, he was working with the orchestra, this very difficult piece with all kinds of intricacies. And and in the dress rehearsal right before uh, the premiere night, he he felt like perhaps he got it there, that the group was finally playing to the full potential of all that they had. And it came to the premiere night, and and they worked their way through the piece, and it was incredible and moving, and uh, all the quiet spots at just the right place, all the loud spots at just the right place. It was amazing. And at the end, there was a hushed silence, and then the crowd erupts, with a standing ovation and uh, the conductor turns around and he takes a bow and he looks but then he looks up into the balcony and then after looking into the balcony he storms off the stage and everyone is just what's going on what's wrong with him finally the the concert master finds him in his dressing room and says maestro what's wrong it was fabulous we did wonderfully didn't you see the reception of the crowd and the conductor said, but he wasn't happy. Who's he? My Dr. Vader, my, my, my mentor was, was up in the balcony. And I could see that, that he was not pleased. I play for an audience of one. There's a very real sense, friends, that, that pastors, we serve you, but we play for an audience of one. Blessedly, he's pleased with his, his beloved sons in the ministry. But ultimately, we serve as servants for you, but ultimately for Jesus. Pastors are not the hero. In the the end, the one we proclaim, he's the hero. His name is Jesus, and Jesus is Lord. I mean, that's what Paul says here, but, but Paul points this up in a variety of ways throughout the two Corinthian letters. Uh, in one place, he, he makes the point that, that we're not baptized into the name of our pastors. Um, while you might have some, some sentimental relationship with the pastor who baptized you, you're not baptized into Sean Lucas's name. You, you're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul makes that point. Paul tells you that, that pastors were not crucified for you. No, rather, Jesus was crucified for you. Friends, the the fundamental Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord, which means what? Our loyalties are to him, not to any man or woman or leader. And it's my great joy as your pastor to serve you by pointing you to Jesus because it's all about his glory. I mean, what what does Paul say here? He says in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Somehow, this proclamation is meant to point you to Jesus so that you might see his glory and you might delight in his excellency. And friends, that's what I want for every one of you. For every single one of you, I want you to see Jesus' glory. Because Jesus' glory alone can satisfy your hearts. I want you to know this God who's come to you in Jesus Christ, who is your Lord and your friend and your King. I, I long for you to forsake everything else, counting it as rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and his glory. Because, of course, that's the gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 4 about those who are, who are blinded by the God of this age. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of, well, what's the gospel? It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's his glory that you must see. His glory that alone can satisfy you. And I want you to know it and to see it, to taste it and to savor it and to delight in and to revel in Jesus and his glory because he is glorious and beautiful and excellent and he is yours. He's yours. Friends, it's it's all about Jesus's glory and it's all about Jesus's grace. But my, my estimation since IPC called me to serve as senior pastor here in September 2016, I've preached conservatively around 275 sermons. And, and, and my desperate desperation and, and intention has been to every single time I've opened this Bible to magnify Jesus and his grace for sinners. In fact, if you want to cut me to the quick faster than any other way is to tell me, I don't hear grace in your sermons. I don't, you don't point me to Jesus because I literally every week from Genesis to Revelation, my goal is to take a beeline to Jesus somehow to take you to the cross, to take you to the empty tomb, to take you to Jesus himself. Because friends, Jesus' grace for sinners, it's our only hope. It's your only hope and it's my only hope. It's not our effort or our doing. It's not the quality of our obedience or our performance. It's not our repenting. Now, your only hope and my only hope is that Jesus' steadfast love and faithfulness will not let you go, no matter what you do. That his undeserved favor, his undeserved mercy is greater than all of your sin and your sinning. Your only hope is Christ for you. Christ's life for you. His death for you. His resurrection for you. His ascension for you. His intercession for you. His coming again for you. Not because you're so great, but because he's so great. Friends, that's why he's the only hero, Jesus. That's why Jesus is the only Lord. And that's why our sole criterion for faithfulness to a particular congregation shouldn't be and cannot be how great the pastor is. Rather, the only question that we really ought to be asking ourselves is, does this place and do these people and does this pulpit center its very existence and life on Jesus? Are we going to center ourselves and our very life on the fact that Jesus is the only true hero? Because, friends, if if we're going to be the church culture that Jesus wants us to be, if we're going to continue on into the generations as a mature community producing mature adults, as the session has sought and labored to try to describe, 
If we're, we're going to be a church culture where we're going to be able to work together with zest and, and love and joy and peace and no faithfulness and kindness and goodness and self-control, the very fruit of the Spirit coming up, then this has to be the cornerstone that Jesus, and not any pastor or elder or leader, Jesus is the only true hero. Because he alone is worthy. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do long for you, Jesus, to be everything in our sight. As we're going to sing, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransom powers, all my words and thoughts and doing, all my days, all my hours. Lord Jesus, we, we long for you to be big in our eyes as the only true hero. Pastors are servants to point us to you, but Jesus, you must be all in all for us. Lord, please do your work in ways that are far beyond what we can ask or imagine. Do your work in centering our hearts right here on, on Jesus alone, Jesus only. Lord, grant us this, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.